Ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for checking out Hip Hop Legal, your one and only source for hip hop, the law, and everything else in between. We're right back like we never left. Happy 2021. Yeah, we know. We're a little bit late. But uh, we just wanted to let the dust settle. Because apparently, there are a lot of imitators. There are a lot of duplicators. There are a lot of individuals all of a sudden that are interested in hip-hop and the law. <laughs> it's all good because we have an abundance mindset. And a little competition never hurt anybody. That being said, we're going to keep putting out this content. Always coming from an informative approach. You see, not only do we cover the news, but we also give you the law. And its intersection with entertainment, sports popular culture from the standpoint of judges, lawyers, paralegals, legal assistants, and everyone that knows the law intimately, but also laying it out in a way where a layperson can still keep up and know what's going on. In short, we're here, hip hop legal. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's get to it. These are the top 10 hip hop legal moments of 2020. Number 10. The rainbow-haired rabble-rouser came home from the feds. Now, from the moment he stepped on the scene with the nine Trey Bloods backing him, uh, this was clearly a force that, a formidable force, that only an act of God could get up out the paint. Uh, and it happened that way. As you know, he got indicted, got hit with, I believe, two years, ended up doing about half of that, and rolled out of federal custody with a reputation that was clearly affected that uh he tried his best to reignite the initial flame by doing it the way that he has always done it beefing with everybody and their mama unfortunately covid as well as the universe if you will did not have that in mind the antics have not stopped but unfortunately, the record sales have not met the expectations. And uh, it's been somewhat of a lukewarm response to Takashi 69 as he attempts to get his career back going to the levels that it was at before the indictment. Nine. The face of the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein, sentenced to 23 years in prison. On March 11th of 2020, Harvey Weinstein met his fate when it comes to the New York case. Having said that, there is another case in California that has yet to take place. Now, when you think about the Harvey Weinstein story, I think it's important to maybe look at it from the perspective of Joe Rogan, or at least how he puts it. Uh, he shared this on his podcast one time, but he said that imagine Harvey seeing himself 15, maybe 10 years ago being at the top of his world, the top of the world, that is, uh, having all the resources at his disposal, being nearly a billionaire, a Hollywood exec that inevitably would have his skeletons in his closet exposed via the ability to have access to some of the most beautiful women on this planet that wanted an opportunity at stardom. Not being able to deal with that level of responsibility is what created a precipitous fall from grace and being in a position where even physically this man today looked nothing like that man back then. Being stripped of everything that he acquired throughout his life essentially. And when you think about that, it really is a sad scenario, but not one that you should feel too sorry for. But it is a lesson. There is a lesson there in that to whom much is given, much is required. 
Former Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison on Wednesday after he was convicted of rape last month in a landmark case hailed as a victory for the Me Too movement. Some applauded as Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance left the courtroom. He said he was grateful the judge took the case seriously. The judge sent a message today uh, that this type of behavior is something that any potential offender is going to have to consider. Ahead of the sentencing, Weinstein made an unrepentant statement to the court, saying, quote, I feel remorse for all of the men who are going through this fight and said he was worried about thousands of men being denied due process in the Me Too era. That sentence that was just handed down by this court was obscene. Weinstein's lawyer, Donna Rotuno, said she was overcome with anger over the punishment. That number spoke to the pressure of movements and the public. That number did not speak to the evidence that came out at trial. That number did not speak to the testimony that we heard. That number did not speak to evidence, nor did it speak to justice. Once one of Hollywood's most influential producers, the 67-year-old was found guilty last month of sexually assaulting former production assistant Mimi Halei and raping Jessica Mann, a former aspiring actress. But he was acquitted of the most serious charge. In an emotional statement to the court Wednesday, Mimi Halei spoke of the attack saying, quote, it scarred me deeply mentally and emotionally, perhaps irreparably, perhaps forever. In all, more than 100 women have accused Weinstein of sexual misconduct. The former Hollywood mogul has denied the allegations and said that any sex was consensual. Court documents unsealed Monday included an email to Weinstein from his estranged brother and producing partner Bob Weinstein, telling him he belonged in hell. Eight. The number eight hip-hop legal event of 2020 is the on Love discrimination lawsuit against Universal. This one is regarding a movie called Couples Retreat and Faison Love, along with his attorney, Eric M. George of Brown, George Ross, O'Brien, Anagway Ellis, LLP, allege that Universal engaged in disparate and discriminatory treatment that there really is no prudent rationale to explain why they decide to take that course of action. Now, what I find interesting about this particular lawsuit is the exposure, if you will, of the major bigwigs involved. That is the executives associated with making this sort of decision, which seems to happen more often than not in Hollywood. But let's read through the names so that we can give these individuals their level of clout. Now, if you're interested in seeing the uh, PDF of the full complaint, it is available at www.hiphoplegal.com from the top. Donna Langley, assistant, chairman Donna Langley, to be precise. I guess her number two is Mr. Dwight Keynes, a brother, co-president, domestic marketing. This is a marketing lawsuit, by the way, folks. Uh, Maggie Cohn, president of DreamWorks Animation. Peter Kramer, president of Universal Pictures. Eddie Cunningham, President, Universal Pictures, Worldwide Entertainment. Lisa Freed, Global Head of Human Resources. Real quick, let me give you a line here from the lawsuit. And again, this doesn't happen often, so I thought it'd be important for us to include it in this top 10 list uh, because uh, this is what 2020 was all about. <laughs> a lot of scenarios where uh, we all of a sudden became privy to information that maybe in the past we did not have uh, but now we know uh, the rationale and reasoning for some of the racist moves that happens in our society. Even from an entertainment standpoint, sometimes it just doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's not even necessary, but it, uh, again, speaks to the subtle sort of decisions that determines and has an impact on how you perceive the world. Faison's love attorney says, setting aside Universal Studios' self-professed solidarity with progressive racial goals, the facts underpinning this case demonstrate that Universal Studios is a fully participating collaborator in maintaining a bigoted status quo. One look at the lack of diversity in, in its leadership team illustrates this. And again, reading right along, as far as these senior executives are concerned, we have 
Miss Cindy Gardner, Executive Vice President of Global Communications. Uh, Jimmy Horowitz, Vice Chairman and President. Uh, Peter Kujawalski, Chairman, Focus Features. Peter Leviathan, <laughs> Vice Chair and Chief Distribution Officer. Chris Miller, General Counsel. Adam Mosey, Chief Financial Officer. Jim Moore, President, Domestic Theatrical Distribution. Uh, Abby J. Parkash, President of Universal Film Entertainment Group. And last but not least, Veronica Kwan Vandenberg. She's the President of Distribution, Universal Pictures International. There you have it. Those are the executives making petty decisions that propagate anti-black male misandry, uh, as well as just the destruction of the black family. Because apparently, you can't have black folks together looking happy as if they're in love. That's the message that's being conveyed by these actions. And uh, this actually opens up the door to a larger conversation that is being had. But I think this is an important moment, a seminal moment that we can look back at as these conversations move forward. This is happening. And for what? The rationale, the reasoning? I don't know. But someone, hopefully, should be held accountable and answer about this. And hey, bless Faison. Hopefully he wins and there's a sizable amount of uh, resources, if you will, that are divvied out that uh, can be put to good use, so to speak. Oh yeah, make sure those attorney fees are right there too. <laughs> Get them. Seven. Seven. At number seven, we have actually a couple cases, starting off with this one, that transpired towards the tail end of 2020. The Fed started clamping down, going after dudes that was flossing too hard, still dripping during the pandemic. But let them tell it, it's all legitimate. But let the Feds tell it, it's all fraudulent. Allegedly, that is. In the case of G. Herbo, we got everything from designer puppies to ex-girlfriends potentially being implicated and forced to snitch. In the background right now, we have the G. Herbo uh, vacation to Jamaica that has been said to allegedly have been one of the incidents or uh, expenditures, uh, events that G. Herbo financed with other people's credit again allegedly in my humble opinion there's no such thing as halfway crooks and you can't play the game of oh i didn't know uh those are just my homeboys it's unfortunate and not speaking about this incident specifically because who knows how it's going to play out maybe g herbo might be able to skate out of this uh, by bringing up a plausible scenario uh, where he can deny the allegations listed in this complaint but that being said understand how conspiracy works understand that simply knowing someone that's running a caper that's running a game that's finessing and they somehow reach out to you letting you know that hey this is what's happening and even worse asking for you to help them accomplish that caper to accomplish that level of deception then you're just as culpable if they make a million dollars and don't even break you off and you're just doing it on the love you liable to go down for as long as they go down get as much time as they get and for what for nothing so that's why it speaks to the importance of making sure you keep the right people around you keep your circle small and make sure that you don't keep too many people that are just recklessly trying to get after it for the sake of stunting on the ground. You dig? Chase success and power, but do it the right way and work as a team the same way that other groups of people are able to succeed in their respective lanes without hurting, you know what I'm saying, at least on the surface, hurting average citizens and stealing money, like that kind of deal. You don't want to go down that path because 
anytime these kinds of situations happen, it hurts your reputation more than anything because it's like you're a thief and you're like a slick thief because you out here taking people's identities and committing wire fraud allegedly. And now people that deal with you are always going to be on the lookout for that kind of deal. That's where it hits you in the long run. In my opinion, I think it's just as bad as someone finding you stealing uh, or, you know, you uh, committed some sort of petty theft. That's just my humble opinion. But anyways, let's get into it. It's another lesson for you. Hopefully you take heed. Six. Coming in at number six, we have the Casanova indictment. They took down the gang gang in December of 2020. Listen, the only way to avoid having to go back, or rather going in the first place, think about it. It ain't rocket science. To avoid having to make a difficult decision that will undoubtedly hurt you figuratively and possibly in a literal sense, devastate your family and also continue the same cycle of taking L's. Don't get ensnared in their trap, you dig? Yeah, man, to these organizations, they handing out conspiracy and RICO charges like candy. Five. Police say the victim, a hip-hop musician named Mo3, was approached by the killer on I-35. Both men stopped their vehicles. The victim got out, took off, started running, but was shot several times on the highway. A bystander inside another vehicle was also hit. Police say that person did not suffer life-threatening injuries. All new at 10 o'clock, Dallas. Police have made an arrest in the deadly shooting of Dallas rapper Mo3. Tonight, police are telling us that they have taken 21-year-old Kawan Dontrell White into custody for the death of Mo3. White faces a murder charge and also a charge of prohibited possession of a firearm. The rapper was shot and killed on I-35E out of his automobile near the Dallas Zoo. Yeah, man, this one right here was brazen brazen to the core uh and this gentleman here that you see in the background uh, his instagram is allegedly the uh shooter that uh viciously gunned down mo3 on an expressway in texas gangster uh and not in the best sense if this was him that did it this is one of these scenarios that again as a community I know, get the violin out, you probably don't want to hear it, but there can't be any more of these self-inflicted wounds, man, especially with dudes that are susceptible to being followers. We got to make sure that we lead our brothers down the right path, man. Four. Four. At number four, we have the untimely death of Pop Smoke. Rest in peace. All right. All right. Good morning. I'll, I'll give you my name. I'm Captain Steve Lurie, S-T-E-V-E-L-U-R-I-E. Uh, the commanding officer of LAPD Hollywood area. Uh, I apologize, this information is very preliminary at this point as we're just getting started in this investigation. I can tell you that at 4.55 this morning, multiple LAPD Hollywood units responded to a call at 2033 Hercules Drive in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, the radio call was called in by someone from back east and stated a friend of theirs home was being broken into by multiple suspects and that one of them was armed with a handgun. When officers arrived there approximately six minutes later, they discovered a victim inside the house had been shot. They called the fire department who arrived and transported that victim to Cedar sinai Hospital where he was pronounced dead some hours later. I'm not sure of the time he was pronounced. Officers detained several people who were inside the house However, all of those folks were released. It was widely reported that someone at the scene was arrested. That is not true. No one was arrested at the scene. It has also been widely reported uh, that the victim is a, is a music star uh, of some import. We have not confirmed the identity of the victim yet, uh, so we are not stating that. Um, Operations West Bureau Homicide is investigating this. They're at scene now, uh, and they'll have more details as the day goes on. Uh, and again, I apologize, but that's all we have at this point.
the untimely death of a young Chirac legend, King Vaughn. Rest in peace. For some reason that night, it was off. Like, we, he stayed in the car for like 30, 35 minutes. And everybody outside is cold and it's shivering. Like, everybody outside wondering, like, what's going on? What's going on? So people starting to go back in the cars. Like, all the honorars, everybody was with it. They went back in the car. So I went to the, went to the uh, car he was in. I was like, yo, Vaughn. Went inside the passenger seat. I'm like, yo, Vaughn, bro, what's going on? Like, you know, everybody here waiting. Let's go. He was like, all right, let's go. So at that time, this is where the security come in at. At that time, we're, we're telling security, hey, it's time to go in now. Vaughn's ready. You know what I'm saying? We've been here too long. Let's go inside the club. So they do their rounds. They go inside the club. They check the venue, go inside, check the outside, make sure there's no threat. Now, common sense, if you guys know, security, nobody cannot go inside a club with a weapon. No matter who you is, you cannot enter a building with a weapon especially a, a venue. So being alert that we're going into the club, all security put their weapon inside their cars because we're thinking we're going inside the club. Now, right before we go inside the club, one of his, um, one of his homeboys came to the driver's side and they said, hey, we seen so-and-so. I'm not going to say no names. We seen so-and-so in the car and instantly- In the car or in, in the spot? No, we seen they he literally our car is right here. Yeah. And and so and so put up right there. So you had Vaughn car, which is one car before. You had another car, which is our car right here. And you had other people parked scattered yeah. everywhere else. And one of Vaughn homeboys came to him and was like, Hey, we seen so and so in the car. He's he's asleep. And he jumped up. I'm talking about like wait, wait. So the other dude was sleeping? Or like, so, like or, or, or just like, just not aware type shit. The other artist was, was sleeping, unaware. He he just okay. put up to the club. You yeah, know what yeah. I'm not going to give nobody no name. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. He put up to the club. And I believe it was just him and his driver. That's what supposedly what it was. Him yeah. and his driver. And a McLaren or some type of car they had. So one of the guys spotted him. And they came to the car where me, Vaughn, um, BJ, and a female... And one more person was in the car. And he came to the car and said, hey, so-and-so's here. And Vaughn just jumped up like, oh, come on, let's go. And with that reaction being so fast, we're like, hey, hold on, hold on, slow down. I'm like, hold on, what we about to do? Hold on, like, we got jewelry on, all type of stuff, hold on. Bro, at, from that split second of his friend coming to tell him, at, Vaughn was out the car. And this is somebody who's, who's normally, like I said, calm, collective, uh, look around all the areas, just fill all the blank, because he, he he been out here, so he, yeah. he know what to do. For some reason, that night, he was completely off. He jumped up, jumped out the car. By the time Vaughn jumped out the car, I don't even think he knew where so-and-so was. He just jumped out the car. He bumped into so-and-so. As soon as he bumped into so-and-so, started brawling. From that 1.5 second of brawling at one of his so-and-so accomplice came through the side of a white car that we didn't even know was with so-and-so. That's how unaware the situation was. Yeah. Came out the car from the side, like like y'all can see on the camera, and shot Vaughn and me four times. I think he let four, five shots off. Vaughn got hit three, four times. I got hit in the leg, started bleeding, went, went for cover. He was down. Are, are you on that security footage too? Like, yes. Okay. I'm the one. I'm the one that's moving as the altercation happening. I'm the one that's right by him, moving back, moving back. The guy when the guy came and shot him, I was the one that was right by him. That got. That's when the bullet hit me. So it was God. God grace that I, I didn't get shot nowhere else but my leg. So like in helping because you know. I think people are looking at the social media, and but you're talking about like you know people that weren't there speculating. The, some people online saying, "Yo, what happened is all the guys ran, left them. They just left them out there." Like, like, like Vaughn's last word was words were like, "Yo, listen, yo, y'all let him get up on me like this, that type of stuff." I'm gonna clarify all that. That's false. First of all, only the only people at that knew what was about to happen. And you got to remember, when I say knew what was about to happen, I'm not talking about five, 10 minutes, 
resonating what's going on. I'm talking about 1.5 seconds of his homeboy coming to the car where it's me in the passenger side, one more person in the driver's side, I believe was his DJ, him in the back with a female, and one more, and one, one more of the guys sitting by the side that I just called in previously to come smoke. Because yeah. it was cold outside. I'm like, yo, come in, let's, let's smoke right quick. Because I don't think you're ready to go in. So from that 1.5 second, jumped out, that situation happened. Security didn't know what was going on. The, half of the guys that y'all blaming didn't know what's going on. By the time everybody realized what's going on, if you, if you, if you peek at the footage, Vaughn and his one security is the only one that's by Quando physically. Everybody else is in the back. Why do you think it's a back training? Nobody even got a check. They're running to the scene. By the time they're running to the scene, shots fired. And then not only, bro, nobody was running from the shooter that shot Vaughn. Because y'all could clearly see that once he shot Vaughn, everybody moved back. People were still there. It's the police that started shooting uncontrollably. It looked, they, like, it looked like that person got shot, too. So yeah. th- th- this was also confusing, right? So when Vaughn is shot, like, and he's, whatever, people are saying that some whoever was trying to take his chain off or something, because it looked like he was being held up a bit, and then somebody punched that person. Vaughn was shielding himself with, Quan, with so-and-so. He literally was holding him up. That's how strong he was. Even while being shot, he know what's going on. He... He felt it because he was conscious the whole time, conscious the whole time. So he's holding the individual as a shield. It wasn't nothing as like, you know, he got on top of him trying to, no, he was literally holding him as a shield. And those shots that was fired by the individual that shot Vaughn and myself was the only shots fired from those individuals. Every other shot was coming from authorities. They started shooting everywhere. It was like, a blanket full of shots going on. So when you see everybody um, taking cover, they wasn't t- taking cover away from the shooter from Vaughn. They were taking cover because they didn't know where the shots was going from. If you look, people was running left, people was running right, people was running to the to the club door because we didn't know where the shots was coming from. Right? You got the police shooting anybody with a weapon that day got killed. If you got a weapon that day on you, you got shot. That's how much shots was getting ringed. So you guys are looking from the one angle of the camera and looking like, oh damn, they run away from the shot. It wasn't nobody running away from no. Listen, bro, we didn't know where all the shots was coming from. So it's automatic. If you don't know where the shots coming from, you're gonna regress to see the situation. And the same guys that you guys are talking about, they're li- they came right back to Vaughn's side. And if you could tell in the footage. When the when after the, the 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 shooter that shot Vaughn got shot from the back, which people thinking it came from somewhere else, it came from the back. He got shot from the back. He if you look at the footage, he tried to walk back to the car and he got shot and he broke he tumbled back. He still had his weapon in his hand. So why they progressing the Vaughn? He's swinging the weapon like this. People was regressing back, but they everybody was still alert to go get Vaughn because clearly it took what, four or five people to bring Vaughn into the car to bring him to the hospital. Is there any truth to any of the rumors that that the person who was still like entangled with Vaughn after he got shot was, even though they might have been scuffling before, he was trying to help Vaughn? He was, he, he, he was screaming, yo, he shot, he shot, Vaughn shot, Vaughn shot. Um, I'm not so sure how much he tried to help, but I, I do know he, he was screaming, he shot, he shot. Could have been okay. from a panic stage, could have been from instinct, not sure. He was just screaming that he shot. Two. Rest in peace, George Floyd, the man that shook society across the globe. It's just after 8 p.m. on May 25th, and the security cameras of this local restaurant are rolling. The indicated time is about 20 minutes fast. A blue Mercedes has been parked curbside on East 38th Street for several minutes. We do not have footage showing when it arrived. George Floyd is in the driver's seat. A police car pulls up in front of this local convenience store and two officers walk in. Minneapolis police said in a statement their officers responded to a report of a forgery in progress, meaning someone was trying to use counterfeit money in a store. 
A few minutes later, the officers crossed the street and approached the vehicle. The police said they found the suspect in his car. The first officer approaches the driver while his partner walks around to the passenger side. The interaction between the officer and Floyd can't clearly be seen from this angle, but the driver of this black vehicle filmed part of it on his phone. The officer struggles to get Floyd out of the car. His colleague walks over to help him put the handcuffs on. The black car pulls away and drives off after a few minutes. Floyd falls briefly to the ground. The officer lifts him back up before leading him towards the sidewalk where he directs Floyd to sit on the ground. A park police car shows up to the scene. Redacted body cam footage from that new officer was released by the park police chief. The officer exits the car to see his two colleagues questioning Floyd and two people who were just in the car. A few minutes later, the officer helps Floyd up off the ground. The video has no sound, so we don't know what was said between the two officers and Floyd in this moment. They walk him across the street back towards their squad car. Floyd falls to the ground once more. Police originally said they noticed Floyd going into medical distress and called an ambulance to the scene. Another police car pulls up, obstructing our view from this angle and making it hard to clearly see what unfolded in the next four minutes between the officers and Floyd. We do see Officer Chauvin pull up to the scene with his colleague. And behind the vehicle's open door, we can make out what seems to be a struggle. Whatever was happening between Floyd and the officers at that very moment caught the attention of this passerby who stops to watch. Two minutes later, a witness standing on Chicago Avenue captures part of the scene unfolding behind the squad car. One officer looks over as three of his colleagues restrain Floyd who is lying face down on the ground in handcuffs. We don't know how Floyd ended up on the ground. One officer is pressing his knee into Floyd's neck, which we see clearly in this video, taken only seconds later by another witness standing in front of the grocery store. She captured the next 10 minutes of his deadly arrest up until he is taken away in an ambulance. Prosecutors say Officer Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, including two minutes and 53 seconds after Floyd had become unresponsive. This afternoon, the county prosecutor explained why the charges came today. We have the officer's body-worn camera. We have statements from some witnesses. We have a preliminary report from the medical examiner. According to the charging documents, police were responding to a call of Floyd using a counterfeit $20 bill. During the attempt to put a handcuffed Floyd into the police car, the defendant pulled Mr. Floyd out of the passenger side of the squad car held him with a knee to the neck. At one point, another officer asked, should we roll him on his side? Chauvin replied, no, staying put where we got him. Prosecutors contend Mr. Floyd being restrained by the police, his underlying health conditions, and any potential intoxicants in his system likely contributed to his death. But the prosecutor says the preliminary autopsy does not support that Floyd died from strangulation. After George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police officers, the Black Lives Matter movement reignited. Do you think there is systematic or institutional racism in this country? Well, I think there is everywhere. I think probably less here than most places or less here than many places. Okay, but is it here? in a way that it has an impact on people's lives. I think it is, and it's unfortunate, but I think it is. Woodward asked Mr. Trump if a privileged life left him out of touch. And uh, do you have any sense that that privilege has isolated and put you in a cave to a certain extent is it put me and I think lots of white privileged people in a cave and that we have to work our way out of it to understand uh, the anger and the pain particularly black people feel in this country. Do you no, you've, 
you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? you? Listen to you. Wow. No, I don't feel that at all. One. Rest in peace, Breonna Taylor. This is the number one hip-hop legal case of 2020. March 13th. Around 1240 in the morning, Louisville Metro Police entered Breonna Taylor's apartment. Officers had a no-knock search warrant, though they say they announced themselves. Officers then say they were shot at and they shot back. Taylor was shot multiple times and was killed. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, was charged with attempted murder for shooting at police. March 16th, her family speaks out for the first time. This is not a woman who would sacrifice her life and her family um, morals and values to sell drugs on the street. The family says Walker shot at officers in self-defense and that they were looking for someone who didn't live at Brianna's apartment. March 26th, Kenneth Walker was released from jail and put under house arrest. May 11th, the next big update comes. We learned Brianna Taylor's family had hired Benjamin Crump, a high-profile civil rights attorney. This is when we started seeing Taylor's case get national attention. We also learned more about the shooting from Brianna Taylor's family. The news organization TMX shared this interview with us then. I could hear Kenny just like screaming and crying. They were shooting from outside the house like this was the wild, wild west. May 13th, the no-knock search warrant and affidavits in connection with Taylor's death were released. A couple things we learned from that. Taylor wasn't the main subject of the warrant. One of the main suspects had been charged the same morning Taylor was killed, and police said they announced themselves and knocked at the apartment. Taylor's attorney said that witnesses could prove that wasn't true. LMPD's then-chief Conrad said the investigation was almost finished. May 21st, FBI Louisville announced they opened an investigation into Taylor's death. Chief Conrad also announced he would retire at the end of June. May 26th, a judge dismissed charges against Kenneth Walker. The Commonwealth's attorney asked for it because he believed they needed to investigate more. May 28th, we finally get to hear Kenneth Walker's call to 911 from the night of Brianna's death. Help! Oh my God! Yes, I don't, I don't know what's happening. Somebody kicked in the door inside my girlfriend. That same night, Protest started in downtown Louisville. They're blocked. We hear loud pops, pops. Things got violent. Protests have continued every night since then. June 1st, another flashpoint. Restaurant owner David McAtee is shot and killed by a National Guardsman as law enforcement try to enforce curfew. Officials say McAtee shot first. We learned that two LMPD officers involved in the shooting didn't have their body cams on. And hours later... Mayor Greg Fisher fired Chief Steve Conrad. June 11th, Brianna's law is signed, banning no-knock warrants in Louisville. It was passed unanimously by Metro Council. On June 19th, LMPD and the mayor announced one of three officers in the case would be fired. According to his termination letter, Brett Hankison violated procedure when he fired 10 rounds into Taylor's apartment as they were executing a search warrant the night of her death. The FBI returned to Breonna Taylor's apartment that same day as part of their investigation. Five days later, on June 24th, Hankison appealed his firing. June 27th, gunshots in Jefferson Square. A man opens fire in the protests, shooting two people. One of them, Louisville photographer Tyler Girth, died. Police cleared out Jefferson Square that next morning banning overnight protests and removing tents and items with little warning. Girth's father spoke to protesters later that day. My wife warned him not to come down because she, you know, yesterday in particular, because she thought it would be dangerous. But he said, no, I, I just need, to, I feel the need to go down and support, you know, the injustices and, and what's going on. And I want to document that. The suspect, 23-year-old Stephen Lopez, was arraigned in court on June 30th and charged with Girth's death. Witnesses said Lopez was a regular at the park and had caused problems before. He reportedly had an argument with someone, not Girth, on June 27th. When he returned to the square, police say video surveillance shows him grabbing a gun from another protester and then firing into the crowd. A look at Lopez's record reveals previous run-ins with police. As for Girth's family, 
His sisters say they hope his legacy lives on through the photos he captured. There have been a number of striking photos that he was able to capture that really touched the historical importance of what we're going through right now. And I think he wanted to be on the right side of history. Evidence shows that officers both knocked and announced their presence at the apartment. The officer's statements about their announcement are corroborated by an independent witness who was near in a proximity to apartment four. In other words, the warrant was not served as a no-knock warrant. When officers were unable to get anyone to answer or open the door to apartment four, the decision was made to breach the door. After breaching the door, Sergeant Mattingly was the first and only officer to enter the residence. Sergeant Mattingly identified two individuals standing beside one another at the end of the hall, a male and a female. In his statement, he says that the male was holding a gun, arms extended in a shooting stance. Sergeant Mattingly saw the man's gun fire, heard a boom, and immediately knew he was shot as a result of feeling heat in his upper thigh. Kenneth Walker fired the shot that hit Sergeant Mattingly, and there is no evidence to support that Sergeant Mattingly was hit by friendly fire from other officers. Mr. Walker admitted that he fired one shot and was the first to shoot. In addition to all the testimony, the ballistics report shows that the round that struck Sergeant Mattingly was fired from a nine millimeter handgun. The LMPD officers fired 40 caliber handguns. Sergeant Mattingly returned fire down the hallway. Mattingly fired six shots. Almost simultaneously, Detective Cosgrove, also in the doorway, shot 16 times. This all took place in a matter of seconds. In total, six bullets struck Ms. Taylor. Medical evidence obtained by our team indicates that only one shot was fatal. Further medical evidence shows that Ms. Taylor would have died from the fatal shot within a few seconds to two minutes after being struck. Detective Hankinson fired his weapon 10 times, including from a outside sliding glass door and through a bedroom window. Some bullets traveled through apartment four and into apartment three before some exited that apartment. At the time, three residents of apartment three were at home, including a male, a pregnant female, and a child. There is no conclusive evidence that any bullets fired from Detective Hankinson's weapon struck Ms. Taylor. The KSP ballistics analysis did not identify which of the three officers fired the fatal shot. After receiving that information, I asked the FBI crime lab to conduct its own analysis to see if they reached the same results. The FBI ballistics analysis concluded the fatal shot was fired by Detective Cosgrove. Our office looked at both reports to determine if there were major differences in the procedures used by each lab that would have led the FBI to identify who fired the fatal shot. Both law enforcement agencies use similar equipment and analysis, and each lab is highly respected for their work. There was nothing our investigators could point to, nor anything provided by the respective agencies that directly explains why one lab made the call while another did not. I think it is worth repeating again that our investigation found that Mattingly and Cosgrove were justified in their use of force after having been fired upon by Kenneth Walker. Secondary to this justification, the KSP and FBI ballistics analysis reached different conclusions, creating a reasonable doubt in the evidence about who fired the fatal shot. I certainly understand the public's desire for answers, and many have questioned the length of the investigation. Simply put, we had to try every means necessary to determine who fired the fatal shot before the investigation could be completed. 
with a thorough and complete knowledge of all evidence collected in this case, lawyers with our Office of Special Prosecutions presented the findings of our independent investigation before a grand jury comprised of Jefferson County residents beginning on Monday and concluding today. In Fletcher v. Graham, the Kentucky Supreme Court said that the grand jury has competing but balanced functions. On the one hand, its purpose is to investigate allegations of criminal conduct and determine if there is probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. On the other, the grand jury serves to protect the public against unfounded criminal prosecutions where probable cause is lacking. The grand jury is unique in our criminal justice system because it operates independent of the court and the prosecutor. The hallmark of the grand jury is its independence from outside influence. This independence is necessary to ensure that justice is done both for the victims and for the accused. After hearing the evidence from our team of prosecutors, the grand jury voted to return an indictment against Detective Hankinson for three counts of wanton endangerment for wantonly placing the three individuals in apartment three in danger of serious physical injury or death. The charge of wanton endangerment in the first degree is a class D felony. And if found guilty, the accused can serve up to five years for each count. Kentucky law states that a person is guilty of wanton endangerment in the first degree when under circumstances manifesting in indifference to the value of human life, he wantonly engages in conduct which creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury to another person. My office is prepared to prove these charges at trial. However, it's important to note that he is presumed innocent until proven guilty. During the last six months, we've all heard mention of possible charges that could be brought in this case. It's important to understand that all the charges that have been mentioned have specific meanings and ramifications. Criminal homicide encompasses the taking of a life by another. While there are six possible homicide charges under Kentucky law, these charges are not applicable to the facts before us because our investigation showed and the grand jury agreed that Mattingly and Cosgrove were justified in their return of deadly fire after having been fired upon by Kenneth Walker. Let me state that again. According to Kentucky law, the use of force by Mattingly and Cosgrove was justified to protect themselves. This justification bars us from pursuing criminal charges in Ms. Brianna Taylor's death. The truth is now before us. The facts have been examined and a grand jury comprised of our peers and fellow citizens has made a decision. And that's when Mr. Daniel Cameron put his foot in his mouth and effectively rubbed grand jurors the wrong way because that absolutely was not how that case played out in terms of the presentation of evidence during the grand jury hearing. So what led to where we're at right now pretty much happened after that incident. There are major developments tonight in the Breonna Taylor case. In an unusual move today, a court in Kentucky released audio recordings from the secret grand jury sessions. Now, that grand jury's decision not to indict the officers for shooting Taylor in her own apartment sparked protests in Louisville and across the country. We get more now from CBS's Adriana Diaz. Keep walking back the evidence presented about the deadly March 13th raid was released in 14 audio clips. In one, former detective Brett Hankison is heard telling investigators he thought they were being fired upon by an assault rifle. And I saw immediate illumination of fire come, and what I saw at the time was a figure in a shooting stance, uh, and it looked as if he was holding, he or she was holding an AR-15 or a long gun, a rifle type of gun. But Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, only fired a single shot from a 9mm handgun. The grand jurors listened to a taped interview of Walker, explaining officers indicated they may have raided the wrong house. They kept asking me, is there a white male in there? I know there's not a white male in there. There's never been a white male in there. 
For the first time, we learned why there was no body camera footage of the raid itself. Detective Anthony James, who was wearing a body camera, explained why. But the recordings don't include jury deliberations or discussions of potential charges. Kevin Glogauer represents an anonymous grand juror who has concerns about the process. Uh, the full truth is not going to be on those recordings, and the attorney general knows that. Lanita Baker represents Breonna Taylor's family. I'm confident that if they had been presented with charges on behalf of Breonna Taylor, that we would have also seen indictments. Minutes after police officers had killed her while executing the search warrant. Scared. Keep walking backwards! You're scared, right. Walk straight back, girl. I'll send this dog on you. Walk back to my boys! Walk back, girl. I'll send this dog! Let's get behind this car for cover. What did I do? What did I do? Who else in the apartment? Nobody. My girlfriend's dead. Walker said he and Taylor were in bed when they heard a loud bang at the door. Brianna said, you know, who is it? Nobody said anything. So at this time, we're getting up to put on clothes to see who it is. I yelled, please search warrant, please search warrant. Walker said he never heard police announce themselves. A legal gun owner, he grabbed his gun and went to answer the door. Moments later, officers took down the door. Walker says, unaware they were police, he let off one shot, striking Sergeant Jonathan Maddenly. Everything happened in milliseconds. Boom, 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 returned four shots. What was your intent? To stop the threat, whatever that was. I wanted to get home to my family. It was just a, a hell of gunfire. And I grabbed Brianna and I dropped to the ground and I was holding her hand while we went down. There's one shot, but then there were 30 shots in return. So a lot of people would look and say, man, that seems a little bit excessive. It does seem like a lot. And are 30 shots normal? On this situation, I don't know how many were necessary. I mean, that's a hard one to tell because the initial shot barrage were so quick. Also new this morning, rare grand jury recordings from the Brianna Taylor case. We have not been on videos, but just because of time. But Sergeant Cassidy is showing that. What's that happen? I said we get time. I said we have time. Juror number three, in her first television interview, expressing frustration with the grand jury proceedings, alleging jurors weren't given all the evidence. I felt like if I was going to give my right judgment as a juror that I needed to present all the evidence, and they did. In your mind, should there have been more charges brought? I thought one would be murdered. No officers were charged in the death of Breonna Taylor. No justice! No, no peace, Taylor's life ended in a matter of moments, but her name has become a rallying cry. Say her name! Breonna Taylor! A call for reform, for racial equality, and for justice. Breonna Taylor's life? Deborah Roberts joins us now. And Deb, we just saw those calls for justice. Does juror number three feel like she was denied the opportunity to give justice to Brianna? Well, that's exactly what she told us, Michael. She says that she's been haunted by this case because she felt that they just weren't given the opportunity. In fact, she says prosecutors seem to be rushing through some of the evidence, particularly the body cam video. And she famously said, we've got time because she thought serious charges were going to be coming. And obviously that didn't happen. Yeah, that didn't happen. So how did the grand jurors, how did they feel about the district attorney's decision not to file charges for Brianna's death? They all had a strong reaction to this. They said they felt that it was a gut punch. One of them said he even yelled at the television. Michael, they say they've had sleepless nights over this because they were convinced that these officers uh, should have been hit with some serious charges, and they just didn't have that opportunity. And when they heard the attorney general say that they were all in agreement, they said they were very upset. They even said that he was lying, that he betrayed them. Deb, we, we both worked on so many aspects of this case for this special. One of the most compelling mm. parts of the story, and one that has not been told in this way, is the story of who Brianna really was. 
And we dug deep, Michael, and you will see these home videos of her. Family and friends wanted to paint a picture. They want people to know that this was a young woman who had a bright light uh, to her. And you will see that in some of these videos. You'll see her being sort of sassy and sort of fun. They want people to know, not just her name, but they want people to know who she was. That this was a person who deserved to live. J.W. Lucas, a hip-hop quote-unquote producer, called Breonna Taylor a trap queen. Daniel Cameron distorted the evidence and presented information that coaxed the grand jurors into not filing charges against the officers in this case. We need to hold them accountable. This one is still ongoing. Now, here are some honorable mentions. Rapper Lil Wayne is pleading guilty to illegally carrying a loaded handgun while traveling to South Florida on a private plane. An anonymous tip led officers to Opelika Executive Airport December 23rd of last year. The 38-year-old, whose real name is Dwayne Michael Carter, had just arrived from California. He told officers he had a gun in his bag, and officers say they found a gold-plated Remington 1911 45 caliber pistol loaded with six rounds. Records show the bag also contained cocaine, ecstasy, and oxycodone. Investigators say Carter was previously convicted of a felony, making it illegal for him to have a gun. Sentencing is now set for January 28th, and Carter faces up to 10 years in federal prison. Last year also saw many artists, including Lil Wayne, decide to sell their masters. That is, of course, music legend Bob Dylan singing his 1963 classic that captured the voice of a generation. He's now sold his entire catalog of songs, including that one, to Universal Media Publishing Group in what's being touted as the most important music publishing deal of all time. Here is a look by the numbers. More than 600 songs spanning 60 years. That's what Bob Dylan has sold for a reported $300 million. Universal now will control the copyrights and collect all future income from the groundbreaking music. In his astonishing career, Dylan has sold more than 125 million records worldwide. He's won 11 Grammy Awards and one Academy Award for the song Things Have Changed from the 2000 film Wonder Boys. And most notably, he's the first and only only songwriter to ever win the Nobel Prize for Literature, and it was credited with creating, quote, a new poetic expression through song. Days before Dylan's historic music sale, we told you about rock legend Stevie Nicks, also sold for an estimated $100 million publishing rights to her song catalog. And this comes as revenue from music streaming has been growing, and with it, the value of owning publishing rights. The Ahmaud Arbery case that is still ongoing. Rest in peace, Ahmaud Arbery, a gentleman that was running through the wrong neighborhood and happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, being chased down like a wild dog by two savages uh, that one apparently had a background in law enforcement, uh, said that apparently Mr. Arbery uh, seemed to be guilty of some sort of robbery and effectively shot him with a shotgun. And this is in Georgia. And when you look at this case closely, you'll realize that if it weren't for the actions of uh, a prosecutor that essentially tried to absolve uh, these individuals that were involved of any wrongdoing, uh, and then the case being passed on to a special prosecutor, and then video being leaked, if it weren't for those incidents, uh, we may have not been able to even have a conversation about this from a national media standpoint. But this was a very powerful story and it's still ongoing uh, and we'll see how it plays out going into the future. Moving right along, the Rayshard Brooks incident. This one took place in Atlanta, uh, really a racially charged incident that occurred after a gentleman was stopped uh, for falling asleep in a parking lot at a Wendy's. He took several field sobriety tests which he subsequently failed and then ran and cop shot him in the back actually. And uh, one officer was charged in that incident. Uh, and that case is still ongoing. We'll see how it plays out. Last one here of the honorable mentions, we have the passing of Kobe Bean Bryant, a.k.a. the Black Mamba. Uh, this one was tough, not only on myself, but society at large. Uh, and beyond that, the altogether nine folks that passed away on a regular Sunday afternoon slash morning, depending on what side of the United States you're on. But 
uh, when it happened, definitely reverberated throughout society and really worldwide. Uh, and it, you know, created a somber, uh, really emotional set of months, again, for society, because all the athletes felt it too. But um, definitely is a lesson and shows us that this experience here, life, is short. And uh, we need to live it as if we're still the same Joe Schmoes that are trying to accomplish something on a daily basis. Never start feeling yourself too much and pretending as if you've already arrived and there's nothing else to accomplish. There's always more that you can do. Uh, and so, you know, it's just the approach that you should have. At least that's how I see it. But that being said, uh, we have the flight simulation at this point and how the whole flight sort of went down and what happened uh, in terms of the failures that made uh, this helicopter crash. And I want to say rest in peace to Sarah and Peyton, John and Carrie, Alyssa, Altabelli, Christina Mauser, the pilot, uh, been doing it for a while. He was a, uh, I believe a teacher too, also taught people how to fly. So this guy really put in his time, but you know, you never know. Uh, but rest in peace as well to Ara Zabayan. And finally, Kobe Bean Bryant and Gianna Bryant. Two Echo X-ray, hold outside Burbank Class Charlie Airspace. I have an aircraft going around. Two Echo X-ray, hold it. Going to be a little bit. I got a citation on a Niner Mile final, and then that go around that I just had is going to be turning uh, base to final in about three minutes. Okay, we'll continue holding. Two Echo X-ray. Two Echo X-ray, Roger, and you're cleared through Burbank Class Charlie Surface Area from the southeast to the northwest. Copy that to maintain special BFR, copter to Equus. Cleared into Van Nuys Class Delta, northeast of Van Nuys along the 118 freeway westbound. Advise when you're in BFR conditions or when you're clear of the Van Nuys Class Delta. Transition at or below 2500 permitting. To Echo X-ray, advise in BFR condition uh, and then we stay on the uh, 118, so we're currently at 1400, and we have 0235. 
two Echo X-ray. You're uh, still too low level uh, for uh, flight following at this time. Two Echo X-rays, SoCal. Thank you for checking out Hip Hop Legal.